personally, he's been an inspiration, and I know that he continues to be an inspiration to a lot of people. Um, I'm just really excited to hear Kent. Thanks. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is September 18th, 1998. And through the uh, program of action as outlined in the big book, The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, The Grace of a Loving God, and Good Sponsorship, I haven't had it necessary to take a drink or a mind-altering substance since that day. Um, and, that's, and that's a miracle. Just like anyone that has overcome this, this program is a miracle. And I know I see lots of miracles in this room, and absolutely a lot. You know, if people ask me, was I nervous? Um, <clears throat> I do this on a fairly regular basis. I don't get nervous when I'm out of town. But for some reason in my home group, it's just different, you know, because uh, especially the 6.30 a.m. crowd, you guys know all of me. Um, only person that knows more than the 6.30 a.m. group is my sponsor. Um, I was reflecting on the, you know, we aren't a glum lot. Um, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. When this group was formed, um, I was not an original founding member. In fact, one of my first AA resentments is Dennis called me when I was a member of another group to start chairing the 6.30 a.m. meeting. And I was like, how does that work? I'm not even a member of the group, and I'm chairing a 6.30 a.m. meeting for another group. And then this group became my home group. Um, but I was in Boston when they were getting this building set up, and uh, they wanted to paint that. And so Dennis called me and said, hey, where is that line in the big book, Joe? He called you know what I'm saying? Um, and uh, I, I, I happened to be on my computer, and I got one of those programs that's, you know, it's got the big book on the computer and word searchable, so I, I found them. So that's my claim to fame. The, uh, the other thing, Dennis, you know, Dennis, uh, most of you know, but Dennis broke his back, and uh, that's why he's not here right now. So I told him, I talked to him today, and I'm going to tell um, a story on Dennis um, on what a great spiritual guru he is. One time and one time only in my sobriety have I truly been uh, faced with a serious thought of drinking. And I was in Boston. I was out of town. And it was during the World Cup, and we had uh, let us go early. And I went into a little pub that I'd, I'd been to before with my wife for dinner. But I was in the restaurant side, and now I went into the pub side. And it was the World Cup, and it's a lot of excitement. And there's, you know, ales and lagers and stouts and pilsner all over the place. And the thought of drinking um, came into my mind. Uh, powerfully, and I did what you're not supposed to do, and I tried to fight the thought, right? And I started fighting the thought, and then it translated into, well, that won't affect my Alabama sobriety, right? <laughs> okay? Nobody need know, okay? Just me and God, and we got a step for that. Um, so finally, after 20 minutes, I got so afraid, I, I just left, right? And so I was like, man, and so I called Dennis, and I said, dude, I almost drank in a bar. And he said, wow. He said, if you ever relapse, drink a Zima and tell me what it tastes like. I've been dying to know. Uh, right? So that, that was the spiritual advice I got from Dennis. Um, but there's a beauty to that, and it goes back to we are not a glum lot, right? Because when he first said it to me, I was like, what the? And then I just started laughing, right? And as soon as I started laughing... It was gone. It, it wasn't a big deal. Um, I want to uh, tell you guys in a general way what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like now. Um, hopefully what you'll hear um, at the end of this is that I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I'm still allergic to alcohol. I will die with the allergy to alcohol. But I no longer live my life in such a way that I am hopeless, okay? And alcohol and fear and resentments and dishonesty and selfishness do not consume my life. I still have all of those, okay? But they don't consume my life like they did before I got here and you people and God healed me. Um, everything I have good in my life today is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Um, how many members of Al-Anon do we have here today? If you, Okay. Let me, uh, very good, thank you. This is, uh, I, I will share another, another story of how Al-Anon works. Uh, 90 days sober, my home group was Metro. 
um, sole purpose, and I'm on fire, right? I'm, I'm in the heavy evangelical stage. <laughs> and and I come home, and, and I'm just on fire. It's about 1030, and we had a little house on Carter Hill Road, and my wife was laying in bed half asleep, half awake, and we had a little bathroom, and I'm brushing my teeth. And I said, hey, hey, we have this saying in AA, stick with the winners. Do you have that saying in Al-Anon? And my wife opened one eye and said, obviously not. LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, 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 uh. So, you know, and once again, the, the, the humor, the humor, because I was like, R- really? Okay, that's, that's really funny. Um, I, and I got nothing. You win. You win. Um, so humor is absolutely important because when I got here September, actually when we got here September 18th, 1998, there was no laughter in our house, and there hadn't been for a long time. Um, alcohol had shrunk my world. Okay, and by my world, it had shrunk my wife's world. We had no friends. We did nothing socially. Um, we worked, although I hadn't worked for a while when I got sober. I was a functional alcoholic. That means my wife had a job. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my wife was working, and she was going to bed at 6.30 every night, um, just waiting for the day to get over. And I was drinking and passing out. I was napping, okay? Um, and it was funny because I didn't start out life that way. Uh, you know, when I graduated high school, I was president of the student body. I was class favored. I was voted most sparkling personality. Um, you know. Dude, that wasn't a joke. Uh, um, you know, so I, I had a good sense of humor, right? It's just alcohol and the life I was leading had robbed all that from me. Um, I've never been to prison. I never had a DUI. Um, alcohol didn't really do much to me. It just destroyed my ambition, destroyed my relationships, destroyed my self-esteem, destroyed my hope, made life a dreary, dismal existence. But other than that, it didn't really have much much impact on me. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a normal household, whatever that is, but my parents are still married to each other today. They live up in Washington, D.C. I've got a brother that's 13 months older and a sister that's three years younger, and they're both very, very normal people. Um, My brother drank heavily when he was a frat boy at University of Virginia, but when he graduated college, you know, he became a weekend drinker, and then by the time he got married, he was a glass glass of wine at dinner type guy. But at one point, he probably drank physically more than I did. Um, I do know, you know, Bill and I were talking before, I believe I was born with this disease, and I certainly had the isms way before I picked up a drink. I never felt like I fit in or anything like that. Um, when I drank, I had my first drink at 14 in the Republic of Singapore. Um, my dad worked for the CIA, and I grew up overseas most of the time. And so I went to Singapore, Singapore 1976 to 1980, and uh, I didn't have a spiritual experience when I drank at all, but I had just gotten there. I'd only been there like two weeks. I didn't know anybody. Um, and I was one of those kids. I was an extrovert, but I was an introvert, but probably a little bit more towards an introvert. And um, I was in a hotel room with a bunch of guys. who We were all staying in the hotel. And I do know that when I drank, I felt okay, right? And I was part of the group. And I could talk to them, and I didn't feel like I had nothing to offer, or I, I didn't feel like I was different. Um, so I drank. You, there was no drinking age in Singapore. I had a blackout when I was 18 years old, and I would drink and get drunk two, maybe two weekends, you know, a month. It wasn't a big deal. I never skipped school, right? I never drank at school. It wasn't that big of a deal. But when I drank, I got drunk, okay? And then my 18th birthday, I did have a blackout. But as a good alcoholic, that was my first experience with tequila, and I blamed it on the tequila, right? It's like, oh, okay, it's that tequila snuck up on me. Um, but that was, uh, I graduated, that was May 18th, 1980, when I had that blackout. And I graduated high school in June, and I went to college. Um, and by, by October of 1980, I was drinking a gallon of Carlo Rossi Paisano wine every day before noon. Um, that's when my chief, my chief character defect um, is fear. Um, I'm not by nature an angry alcoholic. Um, I'm much more comfortable with fear and self-pity. Um, and I was just consumed with fear. I was, I was the big fish in a small pond syndrome. You know, the college I went to had 13,000 people, and my high school had 500, and only 99 of us in our graduating class, and only 33 of us had been there for four years, right? 
So I was just consumed with fear. I I picked a degree. I wanted to be a forest ranger, and I had no idea that forestry was a science degree. Um, and I'm kind of a liberal arts type guy, history, geography. So I was consumed with fear. And um, so I, I ended up – I'd go to classes that I, I liked, like English or psychology, and if it had, you know, chemistry or math, I didn't go. So after a year – my parents stopped supporting my college endeavors because the grades, you know, were just not there. I had like a 1.0 average and incompletes and failed and stuff like that. And so I ended up, my dad got me an appointment to Virginia Military Institute. And uh, I did well there because it was a structured environment, right? There were no women. You couldn't have a car. There was no alcohol, and they marched you to class. That's a pretty good success, you know, for a guy like me, right? Um, but the problem with the four-year degree is it takes four years, right? So I, I dropped out after two and a half years. Um, and that's a big thing in my life. I always wanted what other people had, and I was never willing to do what they did to get it, okay? And that included this program that you'll hear. Um, you know, there's, there's a saying that Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who need it. It's not for people who want it. It's for people who do it, um, I wanted lots of things in my life, and I was just never willing to do what I had to do to get it. Um, so I ended up in the Army, and um, I cruised around the Army. I jumped out of airplanes. That's what I did for a living because I wasn't smart enough to fly them. Um, and what happened to me, uh, and I did, I did uh, three geographics, you know, going to different units. They, those were geographics, trying to feel better about myself and the problems I was having had to be the places I was at. And by problems, I mean I was just drinking all the time. Um, the paradox of alcoholism, um, I got promoted ahead of my peers every single time. Uh, I got awards. I was distinguished honor grad or honor grad from every single school I ever went to um, in the military. And I went to Ranger School, Special Forces, Scuba, Halo, um, Air Assault, Jumpmaster, Combatives, you name it, Pathfinder. I've been there. Um, so I'd look at myself, I was getting the shakes, right? And I'm like, well, alcoholics can't do PT. Alcoholics can't go out all night, show up, get two hours of sleep, and run eight miles. Alcoholics can't get promoted. When I'd get deployed for six months, I did never thought about drinking, right? And we, there's, in the military, there's always stories about that old first sergeant that has vodka in the canteen. I didn't have to take alcohol with me. I never thought about it. Well, an alcoholic has to drink every day, right? An alcoholic can't function at some level. An alcoholic has to be the guy in a trench coat under the bridge, right? So I had all sorts of reasons why drinking couldn't be my problem. So I would change units, apply for different schools to go to different units. And what happened to me eventually is uh, I did my first ever inventory, and it was just looking around. There was just something wrong with me. You know, think about alcoholism is a disease, dis-ease, right? And it's a disease of dissatisfaction. Enough is never enough. No matter what I want, if I get it, it's not enough because that's not it. So I did, a, I did a, a, an inventory. What the hell's going on with me? And I looked around, and I just knew I wasn't happy. And the people that I re re admired the most and seemed to be happy and functional, they were all family men, you know. And I said, that's it. I have no responsibility, right? I'm 28, 29 years old, and I've lived in a barracks or a college dorm since I was 18. I didn't have a credit card. I had a car once, a pickup truck, but it was stolen when we were in Honduras. And I, I didn't even file a police report because the shopette that serves beer is a quarter mile from my barracks, so who really needs it? Um, so what I did was I married a Panamanian hooker I knew that had a seven-year-old daughter. <laughs> My, my wife, who is here tonight, is my second wife. Um, I was, I was uh, supposed to say that. Um, actually, James pulled me aside, and he remembered that. And he said, you might want to say up front your wife, who's here tonight, is your second wife. Um, and so what happened is that was kind of the beginning of the end because it, it, it tore the covers off the, the delusion that I had lived under. I found I could not function, right? I couldn't do things like carry a budget, right? Um, food, elect electricity, phone, rent. I, I couldn't do these things. Um, my wife and I were always fussing. Uh, it was just really bad. So I'm getting a lot of stressors in my life that I've never had before. So now I'm drinking more. And uh, I ended up missing three days of work. And that's not a big deal if you work at Krispy Kreme, but the, uh, the military calls it AWOL. 
Um, and they, they're, pretty, they're pretty serious. So I, they, they took me to the drug and alcohol place, and uh, they gave me a test, and I passed because I always do well on tests. I, I passed. And uh, I ended up in Fort Gordon, Georgia at a six-week inpatient, right? And this was my first exposure. And what that treatment center exposed me to was the disease concept of alcoholism. And they convinced me to a T that I was an alcoholic, right? Because I met every single criteria that they showed me. And I was like, outstanding. I know what the problem is. I'm an alcoholic. The solution to alcoholism is not drinking, right? That's not what they said. That's what I heard, right? And I know we went to AA meetings, and I know they talked about stuff. But also, it's interesting, you know, I wasn't ready. My, uh, I had a counselor um, who was a recovering alcoholic, and he was like, you know, how you do treatment if you've been there? You do a lot of work, workbooks and stuff. And he's like, wow. He said, I've never met a man who drank as much as you that whose life is not falling apart. It looks like you drink alcoholically and that your life is fine. Are you having problems in your marriage? No. Are you having problems with finances? No. You know, I wasn't willing, right? I was not ready to admit to the unmanageability of my life um, because to me the problem was alcohol and the unmanageability was tied to my drinking. So if I stop drinking, everything will be just fine, right? Um, and it's amazing that the big book talks about that, by the way. They have a c- clever term for it. It says self-knowledge avails us nothing. Um, I had read the book in treatment. I read it in an afternoon. It's not a big book, the first 164 pages. So I went back to Panama and didn't go to any meetings because why would I? I'm not going to drink. I have lots of willpower, right? And uh, much like when I was drinking and would get deployed, I was not a white-knuckle drinker. I never thought about it at all. And one night um, afternoon, six months after being medically separated from alcohol, it was during Carnival. You guys call it Mardi Gras. And uh, my wife went into a dress shop. I turned around, and there was a Cerveza Panama beer cart. And I had two beers. They were like 10-ounce beers. And I was fine. And I was like, whoa. Another thing, you know, alcoholism is a disease of perception, right? What I thought they said was if I ever drank again, I'd become a raving lunatic. So I had two beers, and... That's interesting. And I didn't have any more. I'm a little bit hasty in that diagnosis of alcoholism. (laughs) And I had two more, and I had two more. And you guys that have been around, three weeks later, I was drunk on duty. On duty. On duty. Um, And so I was summarily discharged from the United States Army because when I went to treatment, um, I had signed a form saying if I had an alcohol or drug incident within a year of coming out of treatment, I would be summarily discharged. And because I was drunk on duty, that was a second Article 15 captain's mask. Um, so I got a general under honorable discharge. Um, and my life imploded. Uh, and I have never, ever been that desperate in my life. That was the darkest moments of my life. And it didn't keep me sober, okay? Because alcohol was a solution for me, okay? Alcohol did something. Alcohol kept me alive. Uh, in that time. I would drink now. Granted, I cleaned my pistol a lot. Um, and I know now what that was about. But alcohol kept me alive. It was a solution. It killed the shame, the fear, the guilt, remorse. Okay, It stopped the squirrel cage from running. Um, and so I ended up going back home and I was waiting for my wife and stepdaughter to come get visas and come. And uh, I ended up getting alcohol poisoning because I holed up in a, in a hotel, <laughs> made a bunch of beer and a ferret called Michiko. Uh, I always say that because usually when Dennis is here I don't normally say that and then Dennis will share it from the audience Uh, he'll say tell the ferret story so so that was my social community and uh, I ended up back in a 28 day program that segued into a one year program right because you're going to start to hear how I got this thing iteratively but like Frank Sinatra I had to do it my way I had to experience all the things that people in Alcoholics Anonymous were telling me or counselors. I had to do the opposite of what they said and reap what I sowed so I could see, oh, okay, they're not lying, all right? So I lived in a program, I lived in apartments with other alcoholics and addicts and uh, did that for a year and my wife and stepdaughter had come and they were living with her sister 30 miles away and I went to uh, five or six AA meetings a week, a week. And I didn't sit in the back, I sat up front, I loved them, I thought they were outstanding. I didn't have a sponsor, I didn't work the steps, and I didn't have a home group, okay? I had meeting-based sobriety, and I got relief. I got relief from the meetings, okay? But I didn't get freedom, 
and I didn't treat alcoholism. The only known treatment for alcoholism is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? Meetings are not a treatment for alcoholism, all right? Meetings are important. We do this together. We do this in community. We share our experience, strength, and hope. We find our people here. And if you're new, I was talking to, to Josh, I don't know how to do this sober. I don't know how to do that. This is like a safe laboratory for us to learn how to have relationships sober, okay? The 12 steps are designed to change me. There's the greatest promise of this program is in the 12th step having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So it makes perfect sense that not taking the steps, I didn't change. I got a one-year medallion, right? And I thought, I swore to God, it was a graduation thing, okay? <laughs> really, because, you know, and it's funny because the big book talks about there's a certain class of drinker who thinks if he abstains for a period of time that he can safely drink. Well, I didn't think I could safely drink, but I thought a year would kind of like I'm cured, right? I mean, what type of moron would ever drink again, right? Self-knowledge. I forgot that part in the book that said there will times we have a curious mental blank spot, right? And we have no defense against the idea of a first drink. What happened to me in Panama, right? Wasn't thinking about drinking. I'm not stupid. I had an entire career. I was aware of the consequences. I turn around, there's a beer. What did I do? Let me have one. I did not say, so you know when you hear think the, think the drink through, right? That's a tool. It's not a solution. Because sometimes we can think the drink through. But our literature, based on our experience, is very clear. There will come a time where you have no power to think the next drink through, right? The story of the jaywalker, they're talking about that. You can be aware of all the consequences and what's happening to your life, but you are deluded, right? And that's an important term. We hear in AA the term denial. Denial is only used once in the big book, and it's used in a different context. The book uses delusion, and it's important to understand the distinction. A buddy of mine, Rich Bruckner, gets it this way. I steal your wallet, and you ask me, did you steal my wallet? And I say, no. I'm denying it. You hook me up to a polygraph test, and you say, did you steal Hollywood's wallet? And I say, no. And the polygraph goes off the chart because I am denying what I know to be true. A delusional person, I steal Hollywood's wallet. He says, did you steal my wallet? I say, no. You hook me up to a lie detector test, and you ask me, did I steal your wallet? And I say, no, and it flatlines. Okay? I don't think I stole his wallet. That is delusion. That's why the book uses delusion all throughout the book in reference to our relation to alcohol. We cannot see the true from the false, right? So when you're going out and you're like me, well, I'm not thinking about drinking. Hey, and I'm avoiding my triggers. And if I think about drinking, I'll say, hey, wait a minute. Drinking has caused me multiple problems in the past, and I should probably not. It won't happen because if I could do that, now think about it. If I could do that, I would not be powerless over alcohol. I would have power over alcohol, and I wouldn't need you. And I wouldn't need this program, and I wouldn't need God because I would have power. I could do it myself. When I was seven years old at a family reunion in Davidsville, Pennsylvania, I ate watermelon for the first time, and I vomited a lot. Okay? I am 51 years old, and I have never eaten watermelon <laughs> since. Okay? I don't have a mental obsession with, with watermelon, and I am not powerless over watermelon. Okay, I have successfully abstained from watermelon. Okay, but that's huge because if you're new and you you want to come in here and you know hit some meetings up to you know and then you'll be good to go. And well-meaning people speaking out of ignorance, meaning lack of knowledge, will pat you on the back and say, "Don't drink and go to meetings. You'll be okay." Meeting makers do not make it unless they go long enough and then something happens. But many meeting makers disappear and nobody in the home group even knows they're gone. Okay, so I graduated that program. I moved back in with my wife and daughter, and um, I went six more months. So I had 18 months separated from alcohol, and I went grocery shopping, and the idea of a beer popped into my mind, and it was a quarter Budweiser. And I got a quarter Budweiser, and three weeks later I came home because um, my wife could smell the beer. Well, I was drinking every day, and she knew I shouldn't drink, and we were fussing, and she was nagging, and that's a buzzkill for me, okay? <laughs> it is. I, I just like, I like mellow. I'm, I'm, I should have been a pot smoker, okay? Um, and so I came home, 
And I told her, I'm leaving. Um, and I abandoned my wife and stepdaughter, and I haven't seen them since. Um, and that was 1995, um, 1995-ish, because um, I chose alcohol over my family. Um, so I moved in with some pilots. Uh, I was working for the airlines, and we had a single-family home, and I was prepared to go on to the bitter end. I knew I was an alcoholic. I was not ready to pick up a kid of spiritual tools. I was willing to drink myself to death, which I knew it would happen eventually, and I didn't care because I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Okay, And what happened is I actually um, I stole a credit card from my parents and racked up $10,000 on it, and uh, one of the things I bought was a computer. And I hooked the computer up, got an AOL account, and um, the first word I ever typed into a search engine was Singapore, right? And I uh, found out the high school had a bulletin board, for alumni, and I found my wife, my current wife, James, uh, <laughs> um, had found, uh, she posted a message, anybody from class in 1980. And so we connected through the Internet and phone calls, and because uh, I worked for the airlines, I could fly D.C. to Atlanta where she'd pick me up, and I took her hostage. Um, I, I literally, she had no idea that I was a raving alcoholic. Uh, she did a lot of stuff about me that she had no idea. Um, I, am, I am the editor of the story I present to people. Okay, and there were certain things that uh, she did not have a need to know. Okay, so so what happened is, came down here, couldn't stop drinking, and I got the last stage. I got physiologically addicted to the alcohol. Um, I absolutely had to drink in the morning. I was waking up with the shakes. I was drinking a beer like this. It was that bad. Um, Got to the point where I couldn't work because um, I'd have to have two or three beers in the morning to steady the nerves. But the phenomenon of craving that kicks in when I have two or three beers, if the craving didn't kick in, I could go to work. If it kicked in, I had to have more beer, and then I couldn't go to work. Um, so what happened is uh, it, it got real bad. I was getting the night sweats, and I didn't know what they were, right? I thought I had I'd urinated in the bed, um, but I hadn't. I mean, it could, well, because it, it happened before in my life. Um, so that's why that was my first thought. But uh, I know now what it was was the night sweats. Um, so September 17th, 1998, I told my wife I, I, needed, uh, I needed to get some help. I didn't think I could stop drinking. And uh, so the next day, we, I ended up at the University of Mead Haven. Um, and I remember, and I was, you know, Josh, you know, we were talking about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. And something happened to me um, that first week there. I remember I went to, uh, I got... I went to treatment, by the way. It was my two-month wedding anniversary, right? And I went to Miss Martha, and I told her. Uh, Martha was the family counselor there. And I said, there's a couple of things I, I need to tell Corey, I think, because um, marriage is not necessarily based on the truth, right? And I, my perception of what she said was, bless your heart, go with God. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I came home that night, and I told Corey, I said, look, uh, and this is dreaded words from an alcoholic that you're married to. I need to be rigorously honest with you. In fact, I still throw that out now. Honey, we need to talk. It's always a great thing to watch the fear. Just like she'll, she'll, around the house, she'll lay the book, The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage, right? I'll be like, oh, hell, there's that book. What's, you know, what's going on? <laughs> so what I told my wife was I was not a college graduate because VMI, you get a class ring your junior year. Okay, so I had a class ring, all right? I told her uh, I did not get out of the Army on an early out. Um, I was kicked out for alcohol rehabilitation failure, and Mead Haven was not my first treatment. It was my third, and one of them was a year long. Now, here's why that's important. I truly expected my wife to leave me, not that I wanted her to, but I was sick and tired of living that low-down way of life, right? I was sick and tired of being me. You know, and so I was willing to be honest with somebody and face the consequences. And she didn't, she didn't leave me. Um, Ida left me. I'm here to tell you, Ida left me. Um, she's built for endurance, not for speed. Um, and she, uh, she, she got into, uh, she got into Al-Anon right, right as, uh, right as I got sober. Um, and so, so that was a, that was a big, big turning point in my life. And I ended up going to, uh, I got sober at Metro, um, Soul Purpose Group, and I got a sponsor, and I told him I'm willing to do a 90 and 90, and he said, good for you, Skippy. How about you go to a meeting every night for a year? He said, the meetings are at 8. We open at 7. I want you here at 7. The meeting ends at 9. We close at 10. I want you here to 10. Um, so be here 7 to 10 for a year. Um, I thought that was kind of fanatical. Um, 
But I said yes, okay. And now, now here's important, you know, in sponsorship. Um, my sponsor, this is how I was sponsored. I was sponsored through the big book up to a point. I was sponsored step one through nine, okay, religiously through the book. Step 10 was admit it when you're wrong. And step 11 was ask God to keep you sober. And step 12 was go chair a meeting and sponsor people, all right. And some amazing things happened to me. <clears throat> we have the 10-step promises or the 9-step promises, okay, before we're halfway through. And I did that work. I did that work rigorously. And amazing things happened to me. I uh, went back to school at 90 days sober, and I ended up graduating with the 3.96 in management information systems. I had to take math, and I had to learn computer stuff. And I found out that when I went to class and I didn't drink and I took notes and I raised my hand and I went to the professor and said, I don't understand, can you help me, um, that I, I could do very, very well. I got hit, picked up by the Air Force um, in my junior year as a co-op. Um, that was 1999. I started with them December of 1999, and that's who I work for now. I still work for the uh, the Air Force as a civilian. In a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, one of my guys in my home group, Thomas V, talked about um, as part of his amends process, he'd been a guest of the state of Alabama 13, 14 times, um, and how what he could do to make that right. And his sponsor said, you know, well, why don't you go explore, see if you can get a pardon. So I talked to my sponsor, um, James Coley, at the time, and I said, James, you know, you know, I got that general under, under, under honorable con discharge, and it's a great shame in my life because I let the Army down. Um, and he said, well, go to the VA. And so I went to the VA, and there's a form, and I filled out the form, and I didn't have any character references. I just put in there, I haven't been arrested since I've been discharged. I work for the Air Force. I've gone to school, and I, have, I got an honorable discharge from the United States Army. Okay? I'm in another meeting. I'm in another meeting, and Tammy F. is speaking, and Tammy F., talks about how part of her journey is she got sober and she got a GED and she got an undergrad and she got a master's degree. And I, Corey and I were there and I turned to Corey and I said, I believe I want to get a master's degree just for me. The old timers told me if I want to build my self-esteem to do things that are esteemable to me, right? And that was something that I've always wanted to do. There's no promotion attached to it. There's no extra money. It's something that I wanted to do. Notice two of those biggest events in my life came from going to meetings, and hearing what people in Alcoholics Anonymous did in their life. And so we were able to do that, um, to fund me, didn't take a loan, and was able to do that. So things are rocking along. Notice I'm, I'm busy and I'm, I'm sponsoring people and I'm doing service work. I'm a GSR. I've been a GSR for six years at two different groups, three different groups. Um, I'm doing everything. And the key is I'm busy, right? I'm busy. And I'm getting the gifts. Well, what happened is... When the master's program was over and I had a little bit of, just started getting a little restless, right? Like I got that spring in my belly. Things are just getting tight. I'm going to meetings and uh, I'm just getting, I don't know, it's just something, something's not right. And uh, I started getting these things in the mail. Uh, my credit had repaired itself. I'd gone through bankruptcy in 95 before I got sober. And I started getting those unsolicited credit cards that I've been getting for a while, but now I'm opening them. Huh. Okay. So I'm calling the 1-800. Right. And uh, eventually over a two-year period, got myself $42,000 into debt. Okay. And I was buying stuff that when I hit buy, I knew wouldn't fix me. Okay. I couldn't do it. I'm telling you, what I had is I was suffering from untreated alcoholism in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? Because, and you're going to hear this, this is a big thing. I knew nothing about 10 and 11. I knew absolutely nothing about the disciplines of 10 and 11. Um, and so what happened to me is what was awakened went back to sleep, okay? What was awakened went back to sleep. All that work I had done, talk about resting on my laurels, I had stopped any type of looking at me. Right, So what happens is over time, I'm diluted. Right, That delusion never goes away. That's why regular inventory, besides inventorying it and sharing it with someone, my sponsor is not diluted because he's not emotionally involved in my life. He can give me an objective view. Okay, After a while, it's very insidious. Right, Alcohol's cunning, baffling, powerful, and subtle. Right, You build a wall up front. Right, 
to protect yourself, and it comes around the flanks. You build the flank walls, and then it hits you from the rear. So then you put 360. Then he does an airborne assault on your butt, okay? You've got to treat this every day. Hey, how do we do that? We got steps for that. This is an in, the 12 steps are an integrated, holistic design for living, all right? They're meant to be utilized every single day, right? That's what they talk about when they say this is a design for living, okay? Through this process, we alcoholics are an undisciplined lot, and through this process, we let God discipline us. So what happened is um, I'm so spiritually developed that the day that my allowance could no longer pay my minimum balance due on my three credit cards. Oh, and also, here's another thing. This is, if you're out there, this is a little gut check. I'm in AA, and I'm doing, the, I'm doing the 12 steps right at Prattville, and I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm doing service. I'm running home, literally. I work at Gunner. I live in Wetumpka. My, meet, my home group was Strange Camels. Notice, not close to each other. I'm running home to get the mail to get the bills, right, so my wife doesn't see them, okay? So that's dishonest, okay? Every now and then when she would say, hey, where did X come from, I would lie, okay? I'm consumed with fear, okay? So I'm not drinking, and I'm consumed with fear. I'm lying. Well, it's dishonesty, okay? Do you see what I'm saying? Huge red flags. But I'm not drinking, so I'm a winner, <laughs> right? I'm a winner. I'm not drinking. Men and women drink primarily for the effect. Well, what effect? The alcohol makes me feel okay with me. The alcohol quiets the shame, fear, guilt, remorse, anger. All right? So I'm real close to a drink, and I don't even know it. Right? The old, well, I'll, if I ever think about drinking, I'll talk to Stan. I'm seeing Stan two, twice a week. How you doing? How you doing? Right? I'm not telling him what's going on. I'm aware every day what's going on. I'm doing a mini inventory, right? I'm just not checking with somebody else lest he just judge me, right? So now I've got spiritual pride. The only defective character I have today that I did not have when I got into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was unwilling to be honest with another man with what's going on in my life because I thought I should be better, okay? I should be better. So when I told my wife, here's what's happened, she said, shockingly enough, it's just money. We'll figure out a way to deal with it. But she said, what are you willing to do different? Oh. And there's a speaker, a guy named Scott, a guy named Scott Redmond from California. And I'd only heard one of his speaker tapes ever that he'd ever said the story that he has $81,000 in debt at 18 years. And my wife got his phone number through a taper, and I called this guy. And he said, okay, call me next week. We'll do this deal. Right? And this is why I love speaker tapes, because they expand your horizon beyond Montgomery, Alabama. Okay, Nothing wrong with Montgomery, Alabama, but Alcoholics Anonymous is bigger than your home group. Okay, It's bigger than your district. There are other people doing other things than what your sponsor says. All right. So I called this guy, and I got a pen, and I got a legal pad, and I got a calculator, because I got financial issues. Right. So this guy <coughs> answers the phone and says, okay, man, he said, where are you at in your 10-step practice? I was like, what? What? He's like, where are you at? Where are you at with God? What, what are you doing on your 11-step practice? I'm like, dude, I got money issues. And he said, Kent, you have a spiritual disease, and you're dying. Um, and he said, if you don't treat the spiritual illness, he said, all you've done is you, you've switched seats in the Titanic, right? We talk in here about the marijuana maintenance program, right, or having the, you know acting out sexually or workaholism. I was just spending, okay. So whether it's sex or other outside substances or workaholism or I've turned my will and my life over to the care of my ambitions, my career ambitions, um, to gain money, anything. It's just I've switched substances that make me feel better about myself, okay? So this guy introduced me. I never heard anybody, nobody, I didn't know anybody that ever talked about this stuff. And I know now there are people here that do it, but I had never heard it. Okay, I'd been to big book studies, which, in my opinion, can sometimes become big book discussions. Um, I never heard this, right? So this guy started me doing this process. During this time, he was dying of a terminal illness. He had pancreatic cancer, and he died at the age of 54. And uh, <clears throat> so he introduced me to the spiritual disciplines of 10 and 11. And I want to tell you, this isn't some cult. What we did was right out of the big book. There was nothing we did that's weird. It's just out of the big book, um, and I'm willing to show any of you afterwards where it's at. 
Um, you know, it's funny. That we will have almost knock down, knock down, drag out arguments over the fourth step. You know, you got to do four columns. You got to use a number two pencil. And then you say to the guy, hey, you know, what do you do? Well, I work out the big book. What do you do in the tenth step? Crickets. Well, then you're not doing the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're still a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Um, but if you're not working the 12 steps, you can stick around long enough and you'll get relief. But you will never get freedom. And unfortunately, most of us that don't do the work eventually leave. You know. And if you're new, by eventually, I'm not talking six months. I'm talking double-digit sobriety. Okay? Anytime, and even having done the work, like what happened to me doing nine-twelfths of the work, what was awakened can go back to sleep, okay? So I met this guy two weeks before Scott died. Uh, Corey and I were speaking at a conference in Lake Gunnersville, and uh, I was up to 1 o'clock in the morning talking with this guy from Denver, Colorado. I had a connection with this guy that I've never had with anybody. And um, when I, I found out that Scott had passed away, um, within 24 hours, I called this guy in Denver and asked him to sponsor me. This guy did not know Scott. They were not from the same sponsorship lineage, had never run into him, and my sponsor's not a tape guy. He'd never even heard of Scott Redmond. So I called him up, asked him to sponsor me. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to do daily inventory. You're going to call me once a week, and we're going to talk about your inventory. And I'm like, well, isn't that interesting, right? Isn't that interesting? So that's what I've been doing um, with him since... Um, with Mickey since 2008. My life has absolutely tra it has transformed as much since 2008 as it did from 1998 to 2006, just not in the outward, in the outward sense. One of the things I've been working on for several years was the uh, Department of Defense had sent an email out looking for civilian volunteers for uh, people to get deployed. And uh, I talked to my wife about it because this is a family decision. And I talked to my sponsor about it, and I prayed about it. And it was something that I felt strongly about, um, and it was part of my nine-step amends. I had an honorable discharge from the Army, but there was still lingering shame, okay? I didn't get a chance to finish out my last enlistment. The Army was my life, okay? And I truly let them down. Not that they can't survive without me. They've done okay. But it, it, was, it, was, an, it was just an internal thing, right? And uh, I tried hard. And, uh, you know, I, let me tell you what enough people will question is, you know, how do you know it's God's will? God's will is easy. Things fall into place, right? My will requires a lot of effort. So I'm emailing these people at the Pentagon. I'm calling them once a week. You know, you got my resume. Have you called Afghanistan? Dude, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, call them. And nothing happened. And so I got to the point where I was okay with not going, okay? And I actually had dinner with my wife and mother-in-law on a, a Wednesday or Thursday. And I said, hey, you know what? It's been a couple years, and I've sent like six, seven resumes to different places, Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not going to get to go, and I'm okay with it because it's obviously not God's will for me. And uh, so I said, okay, no problem. So I go to work the next day, and there's an email. Give us a call. And they said, can't we want you to go to Djibouti, Africa? Um, and I was like, really? Okay. So <clears throat> I said yes because um, I already had permission pre preplanned. And, uh, and what a wonderful experience that was. Um, I'm a computer guy, and I ended up running a, uh, a satellite office there. And it was a small base. It was a French Foreign Legion base four miles from the Somali border and 12 miles from Yemen. And I got to spend a year there. Um, and I went to two AA meetings, and then the other two members disappeared after 30 days. Well, no, they went back home, right? And I went 11 months without a meeting. Um, and I was absolutely fine. I did my, I had my, my prayer books. I did my prayers. I did my meditation. I did my morning meditation, just like it has. I did the same things there that I did in Wetumpka, okay? Um, my wife would send me speaker tapes on a thumb drive, so when I cleaned my little hooch once a week, I listened to speaker tape, and I did my nightly review, and I did my prayers, you know? And, of course, I was busy. So when I got there, and this is another example of how God works, I knew I never heard of Djibouti, Africa, for goodness sakes, right? Um, and I didn't do this job for money. In fact, when I, this job was only five hours of overtime. But after 30 days there, when they made me the branch chief, I ended up working about 80 hour, um, 80 hour a week, um, and that was overtime. And uh, I gave these guys a dime for a nickel. And when I left, I was the first civilian since 2001 to get a Joint Service Commendation Medal. Me and the Department of Defense were okay, all right? I worked my butt off for them, and I did a good job. That shame was gone. The slate was wiped clean, okay? 
you can't put a price on that. So I come home and you know I I know I'm I know I'm and making some money. There was hazardous duty pay, and I asked my wife. I said, uh, you know, how much money did I make? Because I don't keep track of that stuff, right? I spend it. I'm just not responsible with it. <laughs> and uh, she said, you made about forty-two thousand um, dollars, which was the money that I had gotten myself in debt with. But it's also important that we paid that money, that debt down. We we did have a plan. We paid it down with our plan. Okay, we didn't use that money. Another thing that was neat about that was um, in my six-month leave, I got um, to take a vacation. They would fly me anywhere in the world that the cost was the same as coming back to Wetumpka. You know, and I love Wetumpka, but I know what Wetumpka looks like. So I, I flew my wife out to Tanzania, Africa, and we did a, what, nine-day photo safari where she took 4,500 pictures. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and then we, we flew from Arusha, Tanzania to Zanzibar, and we went scuba diving uh, in the Indian Ocean. When I was in Djibouti, she took scuba lessons uh, here at Montgomery Adventure Sports. And so we got to have that experience together. If I had been in Iraq or Afghanistan, she wouldn't, we wouldn't have had that memory, right? We wouldn't have had that experience that we had together. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, because this has been, been huge for me, you know, that 11-step sought to improve our conscious contact, okay? Bill Wilson had written that AA is a spiritual kindergarten, all right? So to me, that leads me to believe that there's some work out there available to us, right? The book says be quick to see, right? And, you know, and it mentions priests, ministers, rabbis, New Age, whatever. There's a, a, there's a wealth of spiritual information out there in the world. And I think what happens a lot of times, we come in here and we hear it, you hear it outside the rooms too. Um, in fact, CNN had a good big article, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Well, it just means you're not religious. What are you doing spiritually, right? And when I talk to people, been sober three, four, five years, what do your spiritual practice look like? Well, I ask God to keep me sober. No, that's awesome. Didn't you do that when you were one day sober? Yes. What are you doing now? Right? The book said sought to improve. Uh, the 10th step, in the beginning of it, it says we have just now entered You've just now entered, right? So think of like putting your toe in the pool, right? The tenth step is designed to keep the channel clear, right, and that nightly review. But the eleventh step, if you read in the big specifically, is to invite us to seek to a conscious contact. And a conscious contact, notice, it's not faith and it's not belief, right, because clergymen come here dying from alcoholism, and they have faith and belief, the big book mentions five or six times conscious contact, which is completely different from faith and belief. It's an experience, okay, and it's freely available. So I started started doing some doing some work, doing some reading, right? And that's not for everyone. I, I get it. I get it. Um, but it's what I did, and I started as I started speaking and, and meeting people. I would ask them, "What are your spiritual practices? What resonates with you?" And I would try different things that they did. Or the guy said, hey, this book was awesome. This book rocked my world. And one of the guys, I love him to death. He's almost like a spiritual hero. I read the book he recommended. did nothing for me. Okay? It's not a waste of time. That means this doesn't work for me. Other books that people have recommended were abs- While the ego loves knowledge, knowledge properly applied can be transformative. Okay? Because how do you know what you don't know if you don't make yourself available? I got a spiritual director in my faith and started doing some work outside in conjunction with AA, not to replace it. Um, I ended up, what I'm doing now, and this, especially people that, that knew me, <laughs> well, there's one right back there, Dee and her lovely husband, Daryl, who is a non-alcoholic but grew up in Chisholm. So, a, so that almost makes him a member. Um, the last year... I applied for and got accepted to a master's program at Loyola University for pastoral studies Um, because I don't really know much about God. Um, I I don't. Um, And I wanted to discover more. If I'm going to have a relationship with something, somebody, I want to know more about them. Um, And so I've I've been embarking on this this study. And uh, no, I'm not going to be a minister, so you're safe. it's just, it's just for me, and what I found is old ideas, old beliefs that I had have been absolutely destroyed. And there's a term for it. It's called emancipatory learning. 
and they tell you up front, it's difficult, it's frightening, it's hard to let go of old ideas, right? Sounds a lot like AA when you come in as a newcomer, right? And I've had to quash several old ideas I had about God, about religion, about man, mankind. And it's been absolutely wonderful, and it's transformed my life. I got in there. I had to write an essay to say why I should, I should accept me, and it said, "What describe your ministry, and, and not in the Protestant sense, the ministry in the sense in the it means to your service. What is it you, you serve, right? That could be meals on wheels or working for the Salvation Army. It's not meant for clergy people, right? Um, and I said, my service, service. I serve in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, because I, I belong to a church, but I really don't do anything there. I'm kind of busy. Um, but I do service in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And one of the things that God has granted me to do, has granted all of us to do, who have had a spiritual awakening, is to now pass this along. And there's no greater thing we can do um, to help somebody else. What this program is about, absolutely. That stop drinking is step one. We have to stop drinking. This program is about finding a relationship with a loving power greater than yourself. Right, and to be given the gift to be a part of that, to work with men and to see the like Matt says, to see the light come on in their eyes. Absolutely, you can't put a price tag on that. The guys that I sponsor, and there's several of them here, I learn more about myself from working with them than I could ever see in inventory in myself. Okay, Some of these guys, and I won't call them out, they handle situations that absolutely humble me because they're sharing it to me and I keep the sponsor poker face on and inside I'm like, damn brother, you handled that better than I did. Um, You know what I'm saying? And I got a lot more time than some of these guys. They humble me. They show me. They show me. They hold a mirror up to where I get to see me and then to see them grow and to see their relationships heal. You know, Hollywood told me just the other day in the parking lot, we were talking about this and he said this guy called him and said uh, he had a phone call from a guy who was sponsoring, I guess, or someone he knew. Three o'clock in the morning, the guy was cussing him out. You know, you no good, dirty SOB. You need to get on your knees and ask God to save you. And Hollywood was like, dude, who is it? We'll, we'll go give him a spiritual butt whooping, right? And uh, so, but he says to him, he says, well, what would you do? And the guy said, well, I got on my knees and asked God to help me. <sighs> Holy cow, that never would have occurred to me. Um <laughs> You know, you know that's powerful. And was talking to, to Morgan. This is not an intellectual program. It's an experiential program. Relationship with God is experiential. You have to do it, right? So do the work. The understanding comes on the other side of the river, right? But you got to get in the river and you got to swim. If you can't swim. That's what we're here for, right? We can teach you how to swim. We can support you while you make the journey. But you got to do it. If you're waiting until you figure it out, you'll never even get in the river, right? So just get in the river, and thank you. Thank you.